Voices from Jerusalem presents Genesis and the Big Bang by Dr. Gerald Schroeder. Adapted and produced for audio by the Asia Torah Media Center in Jerusalem. Biblical chronology dates the world as being less than 6,000 years old. Science, based on various geological and astrophysical observations, dates the world as being at least 15 billion years old. The gap is tremendous and obviously unbridgeable. Or is it? Dr. Gerald Schroeder, who holds a dual doctorate in nuclear physics and oceanography from MIT and served on the Atomic Regulatory Commission, demonstrates that the figures are not only reconcilable, but points out that the biblical account of creation is remarkably close to that of modern science. So this session deals with the age of the universe. Among the many questions that exist in the idea of science and the Bible possibly being in conflict, one of the baselines is the age of the universe. Is it billions of years, like scientific data, or is it thousands of years, like biblical data? When we add up the generations of the Bible, we come to something less than 6,000 years. Get the data from the Hubble telescope, from the land Earth-based telescopes in Hawaii, we find numbers reaching 15 billion years. Alan Sandage, a few months ago, uh, had a press conference, and he says from all of the data he has seen, and he's certainly one of the major persons involved in this, the age of the universe appears to be something a bit over 15 billion years old, 15,000 million years. So, I mean, that might seem as a conflict between 6,000 years. So it's interesting to look at the historical perspective, because in trying to understand the idea of science in conflict with the Bible, which, which is the whole series that I, that I teach. It's instructive to look at trends in knowledge because absolute proofs are not coming. But what is available is to look how science has changed its picture of the world relative to the unchanging picture of the Torah. The Torah doesn't have the option of changing unless you use modern interpretations where the attempt might be to bend the Bible to match science, or bend science to match the Bible. Now that subjectivity is hard to avoid because we all see the world through the filters of our brain. And so with no question we all implant on reality our subjective realization of what that reality is about. So to try to minimize this at least, since I can't avoid it, but to minimize it, I restrict myself in all these discussions, whether it's the age of the universe, whether it's the information on the evolution of life, whether it's on the origin of mankind, the origin of free will, I restrict myself to two sets of information. Peer-reviewed scientific literature that is used in universities around the world. I mean, I have a vested interest in this since I spent many years at MIT getting my bachelor's, my master's, my doctorate, and seven years on the staff of the physics department after. So I don't have the option of being flaky as far as physics goes because I have my reputation to be careful of. On the other hand, from biblical interpretation, if I want to avoid subjectivity, I don't want to use modern peer-reviewed commentary because modern commentary already knows modern science. And so it's influenced by that always. So the only data I use as far as biblical commentary goes is ancient commentary. And that would be the text of the Bible itself about 3,300 years ago. The translation of the Torah into Aramaic by Onkelos in about the year 100, that predates the redaction of the Talmud. 
Then the Talmud itself redacted about the year 500. In other words, 1,500 years ago, it's fixed. Then the three major commentators. There are many, many commentators, but at the top of the mountain of biblical commentators, there are three accepted by all. Rashi, who brings down the straight understanding of the text in about the year 1050. About the year 1190, Maimonides, the great philosopher who handles with philosophical concepts. And then about 60 years after him, in approximately the year 1250, Nachmanides, the Ramban. Maimonides, the Rambam, with an M at the end. Nachmanides, the Ramban, with an N at the end. Nachmanides is the earliest of the Kabbalists that writes in what I would call modern Hebrew. In other words, he writes in an easily intelligible fashion. Okay, so those are the commentators. So there's only ancient commentary hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, long before Hubble was a gleam in his great-grandparents' eyes. So there's no possibility of Hubble data or other scientific data influencing these concepts. Okay, so that's the background of the test in an attempt to try to make the following discussion somewhat objective, minimizing subjectivity. In 1959... A survey was taken of leading United States scientists. And among the many questions asked was, what is your understanding of the age of the universe? Now, 1959, cosmology was just becoming a science, okay? Astronomy was there, but cosmology, the deep physics of understanding the universe, was just developing. The response to that survey, as far as the, of the one question I'm interested in, the age of the universe, was re recently republished in Scientific American the most widely read science journal in the world. Two-thirds of the scientists gave the same answer as to what is your concept of the age of the universe. Two-thirds is an overwhelming majority. No political party ever wins by a two-thirds majority or the next selection, the losing party, is not present any longer. Two-thirds of the scientists gave the same answer as to what is their opinion of the age of the universe. The answer was not 6,000 years, I assure you. The answer was much larger than that. The answer that two-thirds of the scientists gave was beginning. There was no beginning. The Greeks taught us that, Aristotle and Plato, 2,400 years ago. The universe is eternal. Oh, we know the Bible says in the beginning, the opening word. That's a nice story. It helps kids go to bed at night. You know, it makes them feel safe. There was a beginning. But we, sophisticates, know better. There was no beginning. That was 1959. In 1965, Penzias and Wilson discovered the echo of the Big Bang in the temperature and the black of the sky at night. And the world paradigm changed from a universe that was eternal to a universe that had a beginning. Science will never be able to make a greater change in its understanding of the world relative to the Bible than the fact that we now know the first word of the Bible is correct. There was a beginning. The fact that there was a beginning does not prove that there was a beginner. You should understand that. Physics allows a beginning without a beginner. I'm not going to get into that today, but I spent a lot of verbiage on that in uh, The Science of God. What is important, though, is having a beginning, first of all, demonstrates the first half of the sentence to be correct. Whether the second half of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is true, we don't know from a secular point of view. The first half being in the beginning. The second half is God created the heavens and the earth. There may be other universes. The Torah is completely mute on that point. 
physics can never demonstrate whether there are other universes or not. It's all a leap of faith. But whether there are others or not, our universe had a beginning. Science has proven Breshit in the beginning to be true. Evolution, cavemen, they're all trivial problems to the fact that we now understand that we had a beginning. The question then to answer is, how long ago did the beginning occur? Was it, as the Bible might imply, less than 6,000 years? Or was it indeed the 15 billions of years that's accepted by the scientific community? So the first thing we have to understand is the origin of the biblical calendar. I mean, if, that's, if the calendar is the problem, it would be nice to know something about the calendar. We get to the, six, the 57, 58 years in 1997, 3,758 years, by adding up the generations since Adam. There are six days leading from the creation to Adam, and then we have the time following Adam. Adding up the generations in the Bible, and then adding to that the rulers that follow the end of the biblical text, we come to a number a bit less than 6,000 years. Of course, the question would be, is where we make the zero point. It's not obvious from the text, okay? On Rosh Hashanah, the new year, Rosh, Head, Ha, the Shana year, the head of the year, the new year, in the additional service called the Musaf service, it's the longest service of the year. Now the tendency is, if you're not into the litur liturgy, to like to let your mind wander. So the sages that formed the Mahsur understood that was happening. So three times through the service, we blow the shofar, the ram's horn. And immediately following the blowing of the shofar, when everyone is wide awake and paying attention, the following sentence is made, Hayom Harat Olam. This is the birthday of the world. Three times repeated at each of the major actions of the day, the blowing of the shofar, this is the birthday of the world, Hayom Harat Olam. Which might lead you to think that Rosh Hashanah commemorates the creation of the universe. But it doesn't. Rosh Hashanah does commemorate a creation, but not the creation of the universe. It commemorates the last of the three creations that occur in the six days of Genesis. There's a creation that brings into being the heavens, the, the entire universe and the laws of nature. And then on day five, there's a creation that brings us the nephesh, the soul of animal life. And then on day six, at the end, there's a further creation that brings us the neshama, the soul of human life. All humans have a nephesh and a neshama. Animals have a nephesh. And Rosh Hashanah commemorates not the first of the creations of the universe, but the creation of the neshama, the soul of human life. Rosh Hashanah falls right here. Which means that we start counting the 5,758 years, as we are in 1997, from the creation of the soul of Adam, not the body, but the soul of Adam. So we have a clock that begins with Adam, and the six days are separate. They're separate from this, this clock. So now the Bible has two clocks. That might seem like a modern rationalization, if it were not for the fact that Talmudic commentaries 1,500 years ago bring that information down. In Vayikra Rabbah, Leviticus Rabbah, which is an expansion of the Talmudic text, which is an expansion of the biblical text. Chapter 29, verse 1, we're told that everyone agrees that Rosh Hashanah commemorates the soul of Adam and that the six days of Genesis are separate. 
Now, 1,500 years ago, when this information was first recorded, it wasn't that, for instance, one of the biblical rabbis like Hillel, here's a knock on his door and his young kid comes in and says, oh, yeah, but you can't believe we went to a... We went to a museum today and we saw we all information about billions of year old universe. And Hillel says, yeah, Rabibi, I better change the Bible. Let's keep the six days separate. That wasn't what was happening. You have to put yourself in the mind frame of 1,500 years ago. When people traveled by donkeys. When we didn't have electricity and, and, and even zippers. Why were the six days taken out of the calendar? Why is not clear from the text, but we'll get into it in a moment. But nonetheless, they were taken out. Taken out at a time when there was no need to make them separate. The reason that they're taken out is because the time is described differently in those six days of Genesis. There was evening and morning. There was evening and morning, day by day. A totally bizarre way, bizarre being exotic, not usual way of describing time. Once you come from Adam, the flow of time is totally in human terms. Adam and Eve live 130 years, the father of Seth. Seth lived, the parents of Seth. Seth lives 105 years, the father of Enosh. From Adam forward, the flow of time is totally human in concept. But prior to that time, it's almost as if you have an abstract concept. There was evening and morning. More things happening. There was evening and morning. A way as if you're looking down on events from a viewpoint that is not intimately related to them. And that pretty much is the, is, would be the key to, in fact, trying to understand the, the flow of time during these six days. In trying to understand the flow of time here, we have to remember that the entire six days is described with 31 sentences. There are 31 verses from in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth through the end of the appearance and creation of mankind, the end of chapter 1. The six days of Genesis, which have given people so much headache in trying to understand science in the Bible, are confined to 31 sentences. At MIT in the Heiden Library, we had about, I would guess, about 50,000 books that deal with the cosmology, the high energy physics of the creation, the, the chemistry, the thermodynamics, the paleontology, the archaeology. Up to River at Harvard, at the, at the, at the Widener Library, they probably had 200,000 books on these same topics. Not Bible topics, but the science of the, of the Big Bang, the science of the development of the universe. The Bible, instead of giving us hundreds of thousands of books, gives us 31 sentences. Don't expect by a simple reading of those 31 sentences to know every detail that is held within the text. Okay? Understand we have to dig deeper to get the information out. Now the idea of having to dig deeper is not a rationalization. In fact, in the chapter, the second chapter of the Talmud Chagiga, Hag meaning holidays, okay? The second chapter of the section of the Talmud Chagiga, the Talmud becomes intrigued with the, with the creation of the universe and especially with these six days of Genesis. And the Talmud tells us that from the opening sentence of the Bible, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, through the Yehulu HaShemayim, thus the heavens and the earth were completed, the beginning of chapter 2. In other words, the 31 sentences, the six days, the Talmud tells us the entire text is given in parable form. A poem with a text and a subtext. Now, again, put your mind in, into the mindset of 1,500 years ago, the time of the Talmud. Why would the Talmud think it was parable? What, you think they didn't, uh, 1,500 years ago, the time of the Talmud, they thought that God couldn't make it all in six days? That it was a problem for them? 
And we may have a problem today with, talk, with cosmology and scientific data. But 1,500 years ago, what's the problem with six days? No problem. So the sages pulled the six days out of the calendar and said that the entire text is parable. It wasn't because they were trying to apologize away what they'd seen in the local museum. There was no local museum. No one was out there digging up ancient fossils and saying, wow, I found ancient fossils. The fact is the text tells you it's parable. It's your close reading of the text makes it clear that there's information hidden and folded in below the superficial reading. And this is what, in fact, King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 25.11. A word well spoken is like apples of gold in dishes of silver. A word well spoken is like apples of gold in dishes of silver. And Maimonides said, what was Solomon talking about? What could King Solomon mean? Why should a word well spoken be like an apple of gold in dishes of silver? And he answers the question. He says, when you look at a dish from a distance, what you see is the dish. The beautiful silver dish. Valuable, eternally, or long-lasting. Only when you bring the dish close in, do you see what's in it. The apples of gold. The silver dish, Maimonides says, the silver dish is the literal reading of the text of the Torah. Beautiful. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for 3,000 years have been a bestseller. The golden apples, the subtleties inside the text that expand the meaning way beyond the literal meaning. And, and Maimonides says, as gold is more valuable than silver, these golden apples blow the meaning apart, expand it way beyond the simple reading of the text. The idea of looking for a deeper meaning in Torah is no different than looking for a deeper meaning in science. It's not a rationalization. If you took the silver dish reading of the science, of the nature, of the world we see every day, and you get up early enough in the morning, you can look over in the east, and there comes the sun rising in the east. Wait a few hours, and the sun sets in the west. What's the silver dish reading? Oh, there goes the sun again. We're going around the earth. That's the silver dish reading of the universe. What's the golden apple? That it's the earth rotating on its axis. And if you neglect the rest of the universe and just take the sun-earth system, it's not the sun that's moving, or moving, although that's every perception of human perception, right? You look at the, you're not going to tell me the sun's not moving, I see it right across the sky, right? You're not going to tell me God didn't make the world in six days, I see it right in the text. That's the silver dish. But the golden apple is, no, no, no. In the sun-earth system, it's the sun that is standing still and the earth that is moving, rotating on its axis, which means at this moment, as we sit here in Jerusalem, we're moving about 800 miles an hour. Oh, there go the clouds, we're zooming by. No, that's not what's happening, right? Because we're all moving together. We don't feel it because it's inertial motion, there's no accelerations. So it feels like we're standing still. But the golden apple is, we're moving at 800 miles an hour as we rotate around in 24 hours to get a day and a night out of that one day, 24-hour day. And that's the small part of the, of the golden apples. Our Earth is moving around the sun, that's the rotation, but we're going around the sun at about 30 miles a second. We're going around the sun, and at about 250 miles a second, we are moving around the center of the galaxy. Do we feel any of it? No. So the silver dish reading would say, that's ridiculous, we're standing still. It got Galileo put into house arrest, right? Not any longer. We now know that there's a golden apple in the silver dish. And just as we look for the deeper readings of science, you have to look for the deeper readings in the text. And that's what King Solomon was saying, and that's what Maimonides expanded on it. 
thousands of years ago, we learned that there were subtleties in the text that expand the meaning way beyond. And it's those subtleties I want to see. Among the early sources that tell us that the calendar is a two-part calendar, even predating Leviticus Rabbah, which goes back almost 1,500 years, which says it explicitly, Moses, in his closing speech, implies this to be the case. In Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 7, in the closing speech that Moses makes to the people, he says, in, a, in essence, if you want to see the fingerprint of God in the universe, and this is how he continues, consider the days of old, the years of the many generations, Deuteronomy 32, 7. If you want to see the fingerprint of God in the universe, consider the days of old, the years of the many generations. And the Kabbalah, Nachmanides, in the name of Kabbalah says, why does Moses break the calendar into two parts? Consider the days of old, the years of the many generations. The consider the days of old, Nachmanides says, Sheshet Yemei Breshit, the six days of Genesis, the years of the many generations, all the time from Adam forward. You can see God's figure in the universe one of two ways. Look at the phenomena of the six days and the, and the development of a universe which is mind-boggling. Or if that doesn't impress you, then just consider society from Adam forward. Okay, either way, you'll find the imprint of God. A bit over a year ago, I was sitting in the lobby of the Larome Hotel here in Jerusalem and having a conversation with Professor Leon Letterman, physicist Leon Letterman, Nobel Prize winner Leon Letterman. And we were talking science, obviously. And as the conversation went on, I said, well, what about spirituality, Leon? He said to me, Schroeder, I'll talk science with you, but as far as spirituality, if you want to talk about spirituality, speak to the people across the street, the theologians. But then he continued, and he said, but I do find something spooky, and that was his word, I wrote it down afterwards, I do find something spooky about the people of Israel coming back to the land of Israel. Now, why did Leon Letterman find it spooky about the people of Israel coming back to the land of Israel? But that's Moses' statement. Consider the days of all the six days of Genesis. That didn't impress Leon Letterman. But the years of the many generations following from Adam forward, that impressed him. See, Leon Letterman found nothing spooky about the Alaskan Eskimos eating fish at the Arctic Circle. And he found nothing spooky about the Greeks eating moussaka in Athens. But he finds something real spooky about the Jews eating pita falafel on Rehov Yafo, on Jaffa Street. Because it shouldn't have happened. It doesn't make sense historically that the Jews would come back to the land of Israel. And that's what happened. And that's what Moses is saying. Consider the land of the world. And that's why one of the functions of Am Yisrael, the people of Israel in the world, to act as a demonstration. We don't want everyone to be Jewish in the world. Just to understand that there's something, there's some monkey business going on with history that makes it not all just random, that there's some direction to the flow of history. And the world has seen it through us. It's not by chance that Israel's on the front page of the New York Times like six times a week. It's usually not very good news, but it's on there. You know, you know major countries aren't. Okay, but now, leaving from Adam forward apart, let's jump back to the six days of Genesis and try to see how we can find in the six days of Genesis that are separate from the world, the 15 billion years. First of all, we now know that when we write the biblical calendar that says 5,758 years, we have to add a bit to that, plus six days. 
Ah, so now when my youngest daughter, Hannah, years ago when she was just seven years old, and my wife had brought me a dinosaur fossil from the northwest of the U.S., where she was doing some research for a book, brings a dinosaur fossil to the house, 150 million years old, dated by two radioactive decay chains. If you visit me in Jerusalem, I'm happy to show you the dinosaur fossil, the vertebra of a plesiosaurus. So Hannah says, Abba, dinosaurs? How can there be dinosaurs 150 million years ago when the Bible teacher tells me the world isn't even 6,000 years old? So what I said to Hannah was, if you look in Psalms, Psalm 90 verse 4, you find something quite amazing. In Psalm 90 verse 4, the psalmist King David says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that passes, like a watch in the night. Ah, maybe time is different from the perspective of, let's say, Psalms, whoever, from the psalmist or from, from the creator or from the biblical perspective. Perhaps time is different. And that was a very good approach, I think, for a child that's six or seven years old or ten years old, or even approaching bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah age. And within Psalm 90, there is a core of a deeper truth. But we have to look for the deeper truth in Psalm 90 than just saying what the days of eras. Now, I have many colleagues who remain friends, but we disagree on this point, that say that the days were eras, okay? As Psalm 90 says. But we'll start with the problem with this, taking the days as eras, as you get older and you start doing Talmudic studies or start studying biblical commentary in depth, you find that problems arise out of taking the days as eras. And that would be, again, going back to the Talmud in Hagiga, as we talked about in chapter 2 of Hagiga. So chapter 2 of Hagiga, the Talmud is trying to understand the subtleties, the golden apples in the silver dish of Torah. And it's going through and analyzing word by word. So it comes, it comes to the word Hoshech. Hoshech means darkness. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 4, the absence of light, where it says God separates light from darkness. But two sentences before that, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, when it says darkness, Hoshech was on the face of the deep, we're told by the Talmud it doesn't mean darkness. It means black fire, black energy, a kind of energy that is so powerful you can't even see it. Two sentences later, it means the, from there on, in verse 4, it means the absence of light. And there's other words. Maimonides brings down examples. Mayim. Most people, Mayim means what? Water. Mayim means water on day three. But in the original statements of water, it may not mean H2O. The word Mayim, although it's spelled exactly the same, may also mean the building blocks of the universe. Interesting. Why? As Nachmanides points out, we don't have words for the, subtle, the subtlety of some of these settled concepts that are, that are required to understand it. So the Talmud is going through and investigating the development of Genesis chapter 1. And it gets to the, the Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, which says, there is evening and morning, day 1. That's the first time that a day is quantified. There is evening and morning, day 1. And just before it gets to that, the, the, the uh, Nachmanides brings down a discussion on the meaning of evening and morning. You know, does it mean sunset and sunrise? I mean, it certainly would seem to. That's certainly the English imp imp implication. But the, there's a problem with that. And Nachmanides points it out. That the text says there's evening and morning day one. Evening and morning a second day. Evening and morning a third day. Comes to the fourth day and the sun is mentioned. See, Nachmanides points out that for an adult reader, this should have made a problem. 
it's why we see parable. I mean, how do you have evening and morning for the first three days if the sun is only mentioned on day four? That is a bit of a problem, don't you think? Yeah, well, we know the author of the Bible, whether you take the, seems to be the logical approach that's divine, or even if you think the author was a bunch of Bedouins sitting on a campfire at night, which is pretty unlikely. One thing we know, the author was smart. It produced a bestseller, or she produced a bestseller, or it produced a bestseller for thousands of years. So you can't attribute to the fact of the sun appearing on day four to like amnesia or foolishness, right? There's a purpose for it on day four. And the purpose is so that as time goes by and people understand more about the universe, you can dig deeper into the text. And we're told, Nachmanides says, the text may say there is he erev, but it doesn't say there is evening. Erev, he points out, Ayn Reish Beit, the Shoresh, the root of Erev, the Hebrew word Erev is chaos, mixture, disorder. That's why evening is called Erev, because when the sun goes down, vision becomes blurry. The royal meaning is there was disorder, and Boker is the absolute opposite. When the sun rises, be it, orderly, visit, able to be discerned. And the flow isn't from sunset to sunrise. That's why the, the sun is mentioned on day four. It's a flow from disorder to order, from Erev to Boker, from chaos to cosmos, something that never happens in an unguided system. You may make the statement unequivocally, as I've done at universities literally around the world, order never arises from disorder spontaneously. There must be a guide to the system. That's an unequivocal statement. You have to have no caveats on that. Order cannot arise from disorder by random Reactions. Oh, in probability it can, but the number is so small that physics says it cannot. So you go to the Yamamelech, the salt sea, the dead sea, and say, wait a minute, I see these orderly salt crystals. You're telling me God's there making each crystal? No. No, that's not what I'm saying. But the salt crystals do not arise randomly. They arise because these phenomenal laws of nature that are part of the creation package to force salt crystals to form, that the laws of nature guide the development of the world. It's why the word, the, there are only three creations in the whole six days. The laws of nature do a phenomenal amount of this development that's mentioned in the six days. Otherwise, you'd have creation every other sentence. But you don't. Creation in the first sentence, when the creation of the universe with the laws of nature, nature creation for the nephesh of animals, creation for the neshama of humans. And those are the creations. The laws of nature are able to guide with it. You know, God steps in and redirects nature. But you don't have to have major changes in the universe because it's set up already. So the Torah wants you to be amazed by this flow of order, starting from a plasma, chaotic plasma, and ending up with a symphony of life. And day by day going to higher and higher levels, out of order, out of disorder. And, I mean, it's pure thermodynamics but stated in terminology of 3,000 years ago and interpreted 800 years ago by Nachmanides, who says, it's, he says, it's not my idea, he says, I got it from my teachers, who got it from their teachers going back. So we have order arising out of disorder. And then the days are numbered. The days are numbered. There are evening and morning. And it's the discontinuity in the way the days are numbered that gives the answer that has been used for understanding the age of the universe. Each day is numbered. There is evening and morning, day one. But the second day doesn't say there is evening and morning, day two, does it? It says there is evening and morning, a second day. Evening and morning, a third day, fourth day, fifth day, the sixth day. 
But for the first day, the text does not say, Vihi Erevi Voker Yom Rishon. There's evening and morning a first day. It says, Vihi Erevi Voker Yom Echad. There's evening and morning day one. Now, there are many English translations that make the mistake of writing a first day. And that's clear why. Because editors want consistency. And human editors want things to be nice and consistent. So they weren't to throw out the cosmic message to make people feel comfortable. But the text carries a cosmic message. There's evening and morning day one because there is a qualitative difference, as Nachmanides brings down, between one and first. One is absolute. First is comparative. Now, Rashi brings a philosophical meaning for day one, the day of the one. Nachmanides brings the physical meaning of day one. Day one, he tells us, comes to teach us that time was created. That there was a creation to time. It's a phenomenal insight that time was created. I mean, I can understand stuff, matter, even space. But time? How do you create time? You can't grab time. You don't even see it. You can see distance and space. You can see stuff and matter. You can feel energy. You can see light energy. Okay, so they have a creation there. But time should be created to understand the esoteric insight from thousands of years ago by having the Torah say there is evening, morning, day one that taught us exactly what Einstein taught us in the laws of relativity. That in fact there was a creation, not just to stuff and space, but to time itself. And that's been recorded by commentators through the ages. And it comes from the statements, in the beginning, and vihi erevi voke, yom echad, day one. And then the interpretation of the text goes further and learns something else from the fact that the Bible says day one. Because one is absolute and not comparative, the text tells us the view of the Bible for those first six days. See, we look at the universe and we say, mm, how old is the universe? Oh, looking back in time, the universe is about, about 15,000 million years old about 15 billion years old. That's our view of time. But what's the Bible's view of time? How does it see time? Maybe it sees time differently. Oh, maybe. Would it make any difference? Yeah, it makes a big difference. The same Albert Einstein that taught us that time was part of the creation, that Big Bang cosmology brings not just space and matter into being, but time, space, and matter, teaches us that time is part of the nitty-gritty, that time is a dimension, that time is affected by your view of time, that how you see time depends upon where you're viewing it and how you're viewing it, that, if you, that a minute on the moon goes faster than a minute on the earth, that a minute on the sun goes slower, that a time on the sun is actually stretched out. So if you could put a clock on the sun, it would tick more slowly. If you could live on the sun, your heart would beat more slowly. It's a small difference, but it's measurable and measured. It's one of the proofs that the theory of relativity by Albert Einstein is in fact the law of relativity. If you could ripen oranges on the sun, they would take longer to ripen. Why? Because time just goes more slowly. Would you feel it going more slowly? No, because your biology would be part of the system. Because wherever you are, your biology is in sync with the local time. That's why you buy a watch, because it tells you time. But if you can look from one system to another, you would see time going very differently. 
because depending upon gravity and velocity, the, those are biological changes, the expansion of the universe, the perception of time. Those changes will have you perceive time in a way that is very different. And I give an example of biological time that is only peripherally re relevant to how we develop the argument in a moment, but just to give you an example of exactly what, I, what I'm talking about. It happened at our house several years ago when my oldest daughter, Hadass, was then 11. As I say, she also is much obviously older now. When Hadass was 11, we were discussing around the dinner table the age of the universe and the idea of time being different and how you can have dinosaurs and how you can have billions of years and thousands of years being at the same time. So we conjured up, we made believe a make-believe planet, totally make-believe, but such places happen to exist in the universe today, a planet where time is so stretched out, so stretched out, that while we live out two years on Earth, only three minutes will go by on the planet. Now, those places actually exist. They're observed, okay? It'd be hard to live there. The conditions, you couldn't get to them either. But in, in mental experiments, you can do it. So two years are going to go by on Earth. Three minutes go by on the planet. So Hadassi, aged 11, says to me, Abba, Daddy, send me to the planet. I'll spend three minutes there. I'll do two years' worth of homework. I come back home. No homework for two years. But Hadassi wasn't quite right. She was 11 when she left, and all her friends were 11. She spends three minutes on the planet and comes home. If the travel time takes no time, just she's there, and then she's here, and then she's back. Any thoughts about how old Hadass was when she got back? She's 11. 11 years, three days. 11 years and three days. And all her friends are how old? 13. 11 years and three minutes, yeah. And all her friends are now are 13. Because she lived out three minutes while we lived out two years. Her friends aged from 11 years to 13 years while she stayed 11 years and three minutes. Hadassi would have gotten three minutes worth of homework while we would have lived out two years. Had Hadass looked down on the earth from there, her perception of our time would be that everybody's moving very fast. You could be like, because everybody moves in her one of her minutes, thousands of minutes would go by, right? Whereas if we looked up at Hadassi, Hadassi would be moving very slowly because in one of our years she would only live out a few minutes and she would do a few minutes worth of work. Who's correct? Is it three years? Both. They both happen in the same time. That's the legacy of Albert Einstein. It happens to be that there are billions, literally billions of locations in the universe where if you could put a clock at that location, it would tick so slowly that from our perspective, 15 billion years, if we could last that long, 15 billion years would go by, why it would tick out six days. And those are the data. No one disputes them. The difficulty is these spaces are not necessarily relevant to the flow of time as the Bible sees it. The Talmud goes ahead in Hagiga and gets to this word day for day one based on the first time that the duration of a day is discussed and says Genesis chapter 1 verse 5 there's evening and morning day one and says day one the duration of a day 24 hours the Talmud tells me that Rashi, in his commentary on the Talmud, agrees, says, day, kafdalad sha'ot, yom, day, 24 hours. Nachmanides, on the sentence in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, I believe it is, vihi or, and there was light, 
Nachmanis, the Kabbalist says, not just that the day, not only that the days are 24 hours each, but the duration of the days, the six days of Genesis, is no more than the six days of our work week, made up of hours and minutes. So there are no ancient commentaries that say anything other than the fact that the days are 24 hours each. The Talmud says it, and it says it on day one. See, supposing it had said, on the sixth day, well, then you could say, well, all the other days were different. You know, if the Talmud had used as the example, there's evening and morning the sixth day, we could say, well, the first five days were different. Okay? But the Talmud says it on day one. There's evening and morning day one. To let you know right from the beginning there's no monkey business going on here. The days are 24 hours each. There's no justification for any other comment. There are no ancient commentators that say anything other than that. Maimonides in the Guide for the Perplexed redefines, I count to 42 words, maybe there are more, but I count to 42 words in which Maimonides expands the meaning of these 42 words. One word he does not expand the meaning on is day. For Maimonides, he has no problem with day. All of the ancient commentators hold that the days are 24 hours each. But the Kabbalah, Nachmanides, where he says the days are, are 24 hours each as the days of our work week, expands the statement in Genesis and then later in the book of Exodus on on Kitikne Evidivri and then in Leviticus on Shabbat Hashem. He says that although the days are 24 hours each, they contain kolayamot olam. They contain all the ages and all the secrets of the world. Nachmanides says the days are 24 hours each, but they contain all the ages and all the secrets of the world. And it took an Albert Einstein to figure out just how they could contain all the ages and all the secrets of the world. Einstein's laws of relativity were let's say, presaged, we'll say, were predicted or were anticipated in Nachmanides' description of the early universe. There's only one Kabbalistic description of the physical universe. And here it is. Nachmanides brings it down very simply. He says, in the beginning, before the beginning, we don't, really, we don't know what there is. We can't tell what predates the universe. There's a medrash on that. The first word of the Bible in modern Hebrew is a bait, right? Bereshit, bait. And bait is written like a backward C. In other words, closed in all directions and only open in the forward directions. Hence, we can only know what predates, what, predates, what comes after. We can never know what predates the Bible. And the hint is that the first letter of the Bible is closed in all directions and only open in the forward direction. Okay, so Nachmanides says we cannot know what predates the universe, but there was nothing that we can understand, and then suddenly the entire creation was in a minuscule speck. He gives a dimension for the speck, something similar to the size of a grain of mustard. Okay, it's real tiny. And he says that's the only physical creation. He says it three times in his commentary. There was one physical creation. There was no other physical creation. All other creations were spiritual. The nefesh is a spiritual creation, the soul of animal life. Then the shama, the soul of human life, is a spiritual creation. There's only one physical creation, and that creation was in tiny speck. And it wasn't a speck in a vacuum, because a vacuum is space. The speck is all there was. Anything else was God. And in that speck was all the, the raw material that would be used for making the entire everything else. And he says, we don't have a word for that in Hebrew. And he describes the substance. He says it was, Luzato brings it down also in his, in his Kabbalistic works. The substance was dak ma'od, very thin, 
Ein bo mamash, no substance to it. It was a substance without substance. And as this speck expanded out, stretching out, this substance so thin that it has no essence turned into matter as we know it. And he writes, Mishia yeshit fosposman. From the moment that you have matter forming from this substanceless substance, time grabs a hold. It's fospo, tofes, grabs a hold. Not begins. Time is created at the beginning. It's in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the creation. But time grabs a hold. The biblical clock starts when matter condenses, congeals, coalesces out of this substance so thin it has no essence. We only know one thing in the universe. One substanceless substance. A substance without substance that can change into matter. And that's energy. Einstein's famous equation, right? E equals mc squared tells us the relationship. That energy can change into matter. And once it changes into matter, time grabs a hold. And that's a phenomenal statement. Because I don't know if he knew the laws of relativity, but we know them now. That energy, like these light beams that you see, or, or radio waves or gamma rays or x-rays, all travel by definition at the speed of light, 300 million meters a second. And at the speed of light, time does not pass. The universe was aging, but time only grabs a hold when matter is present. This moment of time before the clock begins for the Bible lasted about one one hundred thousandth of a second. A minuscule time. But in that time, the universe expanded from a tiny speck to about the size of the solar system. And from that moment on, we have matter and time flows forward from that moment. And the clock begins here. Now, the fact that the Bible tells us there is evening and morning day one comes to teach us the biblical view of time where time is being seen from. See, Einstein already taught us that time varies from place to place in the universe. And time varies from perspective to perspective in the universe. The Bible says there is evening and morning day one. Now, if the Torah was seeing time from Sinai out here sometime long after Adam, the text would not have written day one. Because by Sinai, there had been millions of days had already passed. So there was a lot of time with which to compare day one. It would have said a first day. By the second day of Genesis, you could already say there was evening and morning a second day because there was already the first day with which to compare it. You can say on the second day, well, what happened on the first day? But you could not say on the first day what happens on the first day because first implies comparison in existing series. And there was no existing series. Day one was all that there was. Even if the Torah was seen time from Adam, the text would have said there was evening and morning at first day, because by its own statement there are six days. The Torah says there was evening and morning day one, we're taught, because the Torah is looking forward from the beginning. And it says, well, how old is the universe? Oh, six days. We'll just take the time up to Adam. Six days. We look back in time and say the universe is 15 billion years old. But everyone in cosmology, 
everyone in science knows that when we say, or when I know, when I say the universe is about 15 billion years old, there's another half of the sentence that I never say, but everyone in the, in the profession knows what the other half of the sentence is. The universe is 15 billion years old as seen from the time-space coordinates that we exist in. And that's the key. That's Einstein's understanding of relativity. The Torah looks forward in time from very different time-space coordinates when the universe was small. But in, since that time, it's expanded out. It expands out by stretching of space. And that stretching of space totally changes the concept of time, the perception of time. Not like Hidasi when it's biological time, but the perception of time. Just do a very quick mental, mental, we'll draw this all, put it all together. We'll go back mentally billions and billions of years ago till about the beginning of time. And we'll pretend way back here as the beginning of time, when time grabs a hold, there was an intelligent community. It's totally fictitious, okay? And the intelligent community has a laser, and it's going to shoot out a, burp, a blast of light. And on that pl and every second it's going to pulse, every second, pulse, 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 a pulse of light every second. And it's going to shoot the light out, and by chance, it's all by chance, right? Some people say, by chance, billions and billions of years later, way over here on the timeline, we have the earth with a big dish antenna and we're going to receive that pulse of light just by chance it comes to us or it could have gone out in all directions and one of them had to come to us it shoots off the pulse of light and on that pulse of light is imprinted because we know we can print information on on light that's how we have fiber optics extending information by light on that pulse of light that sliver of light beep, is written I'm sending you a pulse every second and then a second goes by, and the next pulse goes. Now, light travels at 300 million meters a second. So the two light pulses are separated by 300 million meters at the beginning, right? And now they travel through space for billions of years, and they're going to reach the Earth billions of years later. But wait a minute. Is the universe static? No. The universe is expanding, right? The universe is expanding. That's the cosmology of the universe. And the universe is expanding doesn't mean that it's expanding into an empty space outside the universe. There's only the universe. There's no space outside the universe. The universe expands by space stretching. So as these pulses go through, through these billions of years of traveling, and the universe is stretching and space is stretching, what's happening to the pulses? The space between them is stretching also, right? And so they get further and further and further apart so that when we receive them billions of years later and the, and the first pulse arises and wow, a pulse and written on it, I'm sending you a pulse every second. It's, you know, who knows what's out there. You call all your friends, you get the, you get the dish antenna all tuned up and you wait for the next pulse to arrive. And does it arrive another second later? No. A year later? Maybe not. Maybe billions of years later. Because it depends on how long in the distance, how much time this pulse of light has traveled through space is to the amount of stretching. The amount of stretching that has occurred. And that's standard cosmology. It's not Aisha Torah trying to sell you a bill of goods. Peebles, certainly one of the five heavyweights, the most important persons in Big Bang cosmology. I quote him in The Science of God. Is, if I had paid him to write this sentence, it wouldn't have been more perfect. The standard interpretation of the stretching of information as an effect of the expansion of the universe, predicts that the same stretching factor of the universe applies to the observed rates of the occurrence of events. The standard interpretation, now this is the heavyweight of physics, one of the major spokesmen of Big Bang cosmology, the standard interpretation of the effect of the expansion of the universe is to stretch out the rates of occurrence of events. We look at time going backward, and we see 15,000 billion years. The universe is a big universe. 
the looking forward from the universe is very small, billions and billions of times smaller, the Torah says six days. And they both might be correct. What's exciting about the last five years is we now have the data for the first time to know what the relationship of the view of the time from the beginning relative to the view of time today is. We now have that quantified. It's not like it's a, it's a fi fiction any longer. And I take it directly from, there's a dozen physics textbooks that you can use. They all bring the same number. The general relationship between the time here, near the beginning, and the time today is a million Million. It's a one with 12 zeros after it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That's the relationship. So that if a view, if a view from the beginning, looking forward said, well, I'm sending you a, a, a pulse every second, would we see it at every second? No. We would see them every million, million seconds. Because that's the stretching, the effect of the expansion of the universe. Well, the Torah doesn't say every second, does it? It says what? Six days. How would we see those six days? As six days? The Torah sees it as six 24-hour days. When, the, when this make-believe uh, group, of, group of whatever sent us the pulse every second, it was really a, a second on your watch. We just don't perceive it as a second. We perceive it as something very different. And they're both true. If the Torah says we send you information for six days, would we receive that information as six days? Or would we receive it as six million, million days. We would receive that information as six million, million days because the perspective is from the beginning looking forward. We would see this as six million, million days. That's the end of standard cosmology and ancient biblical interpretation. Now I'll bring you the only thing I bring to the party. I said six million, million days. That's very interesting. What would that be in years? Well, it wasn't a hard calculation. You just divide by 365 and find that it comes out to be 16 billion years. Essentially, the estimate of the age of the universe. Not a bad guess for text 3,000 years ago. I'm going to be clear. I've discussed this with scientists around the world. It doesn't mean that they say, Hallelujah, now I believe in God. That's not what they say. It could be all a coincidence. It might be a coincidence. What's extraordinary is is, first of all, the matching from thousands of years ago. I didn't pull it out of a hat. That's why I lead up to it very slowly so you can follow step by step. But what's extraordinary now is you can look at the development of time day by day. See, it's the expansion factor, the doubling. Every, every time the universe doubles, the perception of time is cut in half. So it's the doubling rate. Now, when the universe was small, it was doubling very rapidly. But by the time it gets to be big, it takes longer and it's a constant velocity. So to double a universe when it's twice as big will take twice as long. So if it takes one hour to double it now in size, the universe doubles in size, it's twice as big, will take two hours. Then to double in size, four hours, eight hours, 16. Because each time it's bigger, it has to, du to double in size, it has to move that much more. That's called exponential. And just to wrap it up very quickly, Looking at this rate of expansion, which is exactly taken from the principles of physical cosmology, a textbook that is used literally around the world, relating it to this relationship between the beginning and now, the specific number, which was averaged at 10 to the 12th, is in fact the temperature of quark confinement, when matter freezes out of the energy, 10.9 times 10 to the 12th Kelvin degrees, 
divided by, or the ratio to the temperature of the universe today, 2.73 degrees. That's the initial ratio, which changes exponentially as the universe expands, and the numbers come out to be as follows. I'm not going to put the math on the board, because anyone wants they can contact me, and I'm happy to go through the mathematics, or I lead you by the hand in the science of God. The numbers come out to be the following that the first of the six 24-hour days, from a biblical perspective, lasted 24-hour day, 24 hours. 24 hours as we know it. But the duration, from our perspective, was 8 billion years. 8,000 million years. The second day, from the Bible's perspective, lasted 24 hours. From our perspective, it lasted 4 billion years. The third day, 2 billion years, 1 billion year, a half and a quarter. When you add those all up for the six days, you get 15 and three-quarter billion years. Essentially, the number that Alan Sandage reported to the New York Times about two months ago. And it's not by chance. Or maybe it is by chance. What, what allows you to investigate the chance, which I'm not going to go into now, is now knowing the duration of each day, you can then tell when each day existed in the past. Because you now you just add these up and you can find through the beginning of each day. And then the Bible goes out on a limb, as it were, and tells you what happens on each day. Not only does it give you the age of the universe, it tells you what happens on each of those days. And now you can take cosmology, paleontology, archaeology, and look at the history of the world. And see whether, if not day by day, they match. And I'll give you a clue. They match enough to send chills up your spine. There's something fishy going on here. And that's exactly what Moses says. If you want to see the fingerprint of God in the history, consider the days of old, or the flow civilization from Adam forward. Leon Lederman was impressed by Jews eating Peter Falafel on Rehoviafo after so many thousand years of not being able to do that. I'm impressed, and I think if he saw these numbers actually worked out, he might also be impressed, if he had an open mind about it, to the fact that day by day, the Torah tells an accurate account of what happened in cosmological development of the universe. Thank you.